0: All right. Good morning, beloved. Well, good morning. That's hot. I the dawn. Test, 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 okay. test, 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 all right. Sounds good to me. I do want to welcome all of our uh, visitors that are here today. We do see a bunch of new faces, and praise the Lord for that. We are so happy that you are joining us as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And while the world recognizes Easter one Sunday uh, in the spring, um, every Sunday that the church gathers, um, we are celebrating the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead In fact, that's why we meet on Sunday. Every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, is the cornerstone of the Christian faith and is the main event of God's redemptive history. For just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity um, turns. And without it, none of the other truths would really much matter. It would just take its place right alongside all the other human philosophies and religious speculations of the world. The resurrection is mentioned over a hundred times in our New Testament and was the prominent point in all the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. In fact, uh, from the very beginning, in Acts chapter 1, after Judas had taken his own life, the apostles sought to replace him. And it stated in verse 22 that the criteria was that he must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Why? because that was to be the main proclamation of the apostolic ministry. God has raised him from the dead. The first sermon that Peter ever preached on that day of Pentecost was a sermon built around the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter declared, Men of Israel, listen to these words putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Peter continues preaching on the resurrection not only in chapter 2, but in chapter 4 and through chapter uh, 10. And it's the theme for Peter as well. And then um, the same, of course, holds true for the apostle Paul as he preaches on the resurrection in Acts chapter 13, 23, 24, 26, over and over again, he confronts the Jews saying, God has raised him from the dead. You killed him, God has raised him. And then when we come to the epistles, the letters to the churches, they are packed with resurrection truth. Paul declared to the church in Corinth that Christ was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It is his resurrection that guarantees ours. It is his resurrection, says Paul, that is the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, knowing that he was raised, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present to us with you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5. It says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, the father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then you'll recall from our time in Peter's first epistle. He wrote in chapter 1, and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it was John who in the great book of Revelation, sees the risen Christ in a vision, and the Lord says to him, Do not be afraid, John, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so the resurrection is foundational to the faith, in fact, without the resurrection, the death of Jesus just becomes at best a, a misguided martyr and at worst a delusional liar. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death becomes the atoning sacrifice which pays the penalty of his people's sins and frees those who believe in him to eternal life. It is the very foundation of our faith there is no such thing as a christian who does not believe in the resurrection romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth jesus as lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved now with that as our introduction i want to invite you to open your bibles and turn with me this morning to our text in 1 corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right there in the pew. Be preaching out of the New American Standard this morning. Um, you know, through the years, we've looked at the resurrection from a number of different angles. We've gone through each of the four gospel accounts in which the resurrection in, is listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, We've looked at it from the viewpoint of the disciples before. We've looked at the evidence surrounding the resurrection. Last year, we looked at it from the women's viewpoint as they were the first to arrive to the tomb. We've looked at the supernatural events surrounding surrounding the resurrection. And we've looked at the Old Testament prophecies prophecies concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And so as I was preparing and meditating on, on what angle I wanted to teach from this year, I found myself being drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great 15 chapter which details the significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and what it means to those who have faith in him. And so it's very applicable. It's a fairly long chapter, 58 verses and all. We won't be able to cover it as thoroughly as we normally do, but I do want to skim through it, and highlight from it six foundational truths that Paul lays out to defend the resurrection. And here's the six sections. You'll see these on the back of your bulletin notes. We're going to look at the evidence of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, the sequence of the resurrection, the body of the resurrection, the event of the resurrection, and the victory of the resurrection. So let's begin this morning with number one, and the evidence of the resurrection, the evidence. And uh, just for some context, this is where Paul starts um, with the evidence, because apparently there were some within the Corinthian church who were being misled by this damning heresy, um, that there was no resurrection. And so he begins to talk about the resurrection, and he validates his argument by amassing three basic lines of defense the first one is the existence of the church. Notice verses one through two. Paul writes, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now what Paul is saying here is this, if, if you are a true believer and received the gospel and you stand on that truth and you were saved by that gospel truth. If you are truly holding fast to the word of God, then this is a clear indication that you are the church unless you believed in vain. And I say, yeah, but what's the point in that? The point is this, he's identifying them as the church born again from the gospel message. In other words, he's saying, you who have received the gospel, who hold fast the word that I preached, who believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who stood on that message, who have been saved by that message, are proof that, number one, that message is true. Do you realize the very fact that there are believers sitting here today in the old stone church here in antrim new hampshire that was vacant for over 50 years is evidence that jesus christ is alive look around look around and the fact that there are true believers scattered all across the face of the earth who are also gathered together in the name of jesus today is evidence that he's alive And he says, the fact that you received it and stood on it and were saved by it and hold fast to the word is indicative that Jesus Christ is alive and is building his church. So that's proof number one. The evidence for the resurrection is the church. His second evidence for the resurrection is the scriptures. Notice verses three through four as Paul continues making his argument. For I delivered to you is of first importance, which I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, the scriptures that Paul has in mind here are the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying a second reason to believe in the resurrection is because it is prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would die for our sins and he would be raised from the dead. And that's what it says in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But where do we see that? Well, for starters, there's uh, Psalm chapter 22, the great 22nd Psalm, which is incredibly striking in all of its similarity to the cruc- crucifixion. It's as if the psalmist was sitting at the cross writing all the details of calvary go read it it will shock you it is referred to as the psalm of the cross psalm 22 1 of course opens with the very words christ would cry out on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me and then throughout the 22nd psalm he describes the crucifixion hundreds of years before its inception might i add it describes in verse 7 how unlockers wagged their heads and sneered at the Lord. Remember the religious leaders doing that. In verse 15 it says, my tongue cleaves to my jaw. In verse 16 it says, dogs have surrounded me and have pierced my hands and my feet. Yet I can count all of my bones. Remember, they did not break his bones. It even details in verse 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All of these details happened hundreds of years later after the Psalmist wrote this as Jesus hung on the cross on Calvary and died for our sins. And then, of course, you can miss the great Isaiah 53, that great 53rd chapter that's filled with all sorts of descriptions of Messiah paying our debt on the cross. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And again this is written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Just incredible then what about every sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament who is a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The Passover. Or how about in Numbers 21 where we see another picture of the cross when Moses lifted up the, the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that those who were bitten might look upon it in faith and live. 1,400 years later, Jesus connects that picture to himself when he sits down at night with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord said, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So the Old Testament scriptures are loaded with prophecies and types and pictures and foreshadows which look ahead to the sacrificial death of Messiah. And then uh, in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, he also says and that he was buried and he was raised as well. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And guess what? God didn't. In fact, Peter uses this exact verse to testify to the fulfillment of this prophecy in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. And then a couple verses later in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, Peter says that David being a prophet knew that God swore to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. So this is why David could write this prophecy a 1,000 years before Christ because, quote, he foreknew what God was doing and in Psalm 1610 spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so Peter, like Stephen, who would later... Speak to the Jewish people and take them right through their Old Testament scriptures and says, guys, it's all right here in your book. He's talking about the resurrection of Messiah. And even the third day is prophesied in the picture of Jonah in the belly of the fish, right? Jesus referred to that Old Testament story of Jonah and applied it to himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so not only the church, but also the prophecies of the Old Testament are evidence of the resurrection. And then thirdly, he says, and what about all the eyewitnesses? What about them? Notice what he says in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, the brother of the Lord. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, the apostle Paul also. He says, look, there are plenty of people who will give first hand accounts and testimony to the resurrection of the lord christ there's peter there's the 12 apostles there were more than 500 brethren at one time then there was james the lord's own brother became a believer when after the resurrection remember in john chapter 7 he did not believe but yet we see in the book of acts in acts chapter 15 he is elected and is a leader within the church of Jerusalem. And then Paul says, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. And Paul throws himself in there at the end because he says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. All right? When he was Saul. In other words, his argument runs like this. These people all saw Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead. And you know, somebody's going to say, yeah, sure, they all loved him and, and would have said anything to keep this whole thing going. Or maybe they were just so grief stricken, they just thought that they, they saw Messiah. Or maybe it was someone who looked like him. And Paul says, well, what about me? I was on my way to Damascus to kill Christians when I ran into him." And it's not like I wanted to see him or that I was looking for him. In fact, in my case, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, even though it wasn't really me. He says it was the grace of God which was with me. And so he says in verse 11, whether then, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. See his point? Sure, the 12 were sympathetic. I wasn't. <laughs> and we all agree on the same resurrection. And so the evidence of the resurrection comes from the church. It comes from the Old Testament scriptures. It comes from the eyewitnesses. That brings us to number two and the importance of the resurrection How important is it that Jesus rises from the dead? Well, that's what Paul wants to present uh, to these critics that come along in verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Have you ever considered the ramifications of that? Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And very simply what Paul is saying is if you don't believe in the resurrection for us, then not even Christ has been raised. No resurrection means no resurrection for anyone. They're denying the fact that there is a resurrection, verse 13. 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. There it is. In other words, what are we all doing here right now? If all we believe is we live and then we die and there's nothing after that, then what are we doing here? Paul says our preaching is worthless. It's of no use to you. None. All you're going to hear from me is how to live a better life. But what's that even matter? When you die, they're going to toss you in some pine box or cook you in some oven. A few tears might be shed for you. But that's it for you. The lights go out. It's over. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is a lie. In fact, in verse... 15 we are even found to be false witnesses of god if the resurrection of the dead is not true we have proven ourselves to be false witnesses of god because we sit up here every week testifying that god has raised jesus from the dead verse 15 whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised Your faith, the Bible says, is worthless. All of it, it's worthless. And then here's the worst part, the end of verse 17, and you are still in your what? Sins. See the point? If Christ doesn't rise from the dead, then that means sin conquered him, right? Because he bore our sins. And that would mean then that what killed Jesus is he died bearing our sin. And if he never rose, it means his sacrifice was insufficient. He was a false Christ. It's a false gospel then. And sin killed him just like everyone else. He couldn't conquer sin and death if there is no resurrection from the dead. He was a powerless Christ, a dead Christ, if that is true. And if he didn't conquer our sin, we're all in trouble too because it will kill us just as it killed him and we are all headed to hell. In fact, that's what it says in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They put their trust in Christ, but I guess they're dead too. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. Really. See what happens when somebody comes along with a philosophical argument that their resurrection isn't that big of a deal? The whole thing falls apart. Paul says the ramifications are enormous. This isn't secondary. Secondary. God is a mocker, every preacher is a liar, all of our faith is useless, every message is pointless, we're still in our sins, and we're damned to hell. And so what he's saying here is, you can't just dismiss the resurrection as some philosophical discussion. If you dismiss the resurrection, you have pulled the very heart out of Christianity. You've killed it. You've killed it. Because it is the resurrection that gives meaning and the importance to everything else. So, we've seen the evidence and the importance of the resurrection. Let me show you next, uh, number three, the sequence of the resurrection. How does this all go down? Notice verse 20. It starts with one of my favorite words in all of scripture. But, (laughs) aren't you glad for that word in scripture? Usually, but God. (laughs) He says, but now, now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has risen, beloved. He has risen indeed. The evidence from the first 11 verses supports it. And here comes the sequence of how it works. Verse 20, that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, the uh, first fruits is a rich principle Uh, Throughout scripture, we just saw it in Proverbs chapter 3 as well. But imagine for a moment on your family farm, your first fruits were um, simply whatever crop came in first, given equal treatment to the weather and the rain and so forth. So that the first fruits weren't necessarily becoming at the same time as the rest of the crop. And when God said to his people, I want your first fruits, he was really telling them to stick their necks out a little bit because he was telling them whatever comes in first, you gather up and you give to me. And then you trust me to bring in the rest of the crop. But if you were purely a pragmatic farmer, you might say, God, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do this year. You know, man, this year, it's been kind of a tough year for us. What if I wait until I make sure I got all of what I need and then whatever is left over, I'll give it all to you. Right? But to give you the first fruits, man, that means I've got to give you what I know that came in. I don't know what else is coming in. See my dilemma, Lord? I don't know about the rest. But God wanted that because that's how you live by faith. And God says, if you bring me in that part, I'm going to fill your barn. If you give God the best, if you give God the top of what you have, then he'll supply the rest in abundance. That's the principle. That's the principle of the first fruits. And Paul says, Christ is like that. Christ is like that. Christ was the first out of the grave. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then when we are raised, God's storehouse will be overflowing with all that abundant fruit. What a wonderful reality. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, through Adam the seeds of death were introduced to mankind. That's man's Sin nature. The fall from the garden. All of us are now born dead in our trespasses and sins. So Adam was the first fruits of death. But through Jesus Christ came the first fruits of life. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive and then in verse 23 we see the actual sequence of the resurrection as uh, paul continues but each in his own order christ the first fruits and after that those who are christ at his coming when will we be raised our our new glorified body at his coming verse 24 then comes the end When he hands over the kingdom to God, the father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the father who put all things in subjection to him, to Christ? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all that to Him, the Father, so that God may be all in all. Amen. Just these are some incredible sections of verses as the Apostle Paul takes us right down the corridor of time, right to the very end. He says, there's coming a day when the great harvest will come, when every true believer in Christ will be raised, when you ask, verse 23, at his coming, when the Lord returns. Now remember, when you die, your soul goes to, immediately to be with Christ, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, all right? Um, if you are in Christ, the moment that you die, you are in his presence, the resurrection is for that new body to meet your soul. You say, well, what's it going to be like when he comes? Well, I'll read it to you. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. This is Paul answering that same question for the church in Thessalonica. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Every believer, regardless of where their body was placed on this earth, will rise with a new glorified body. Even all those graves that are thousands of years old are going to burst open, and whatever's left in there even if it's dust or ash or whatever, it's going kind to of flap into the air, and the believer's soul is just going to pop right back into it. New body, glorified by God. A resurrected body. Then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain. So, if the Lord returns right now, we who are alive and remain, what will happen to us? We'll be caught up together with them. With who? With those who are dead. As their bodies are going up. <laughs> Hey, it's Uncle Tom. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Well, that's number three, the sequence of the resurrection. First Christ, and then the rest of us will be raised at his coming. We're going to speed things up here. That leads us number four. And the body of the resurrection, the body, everyone wants to know, man, what will I look like after being raised from the dead? Well, let's jump down to verse 35 to find that out. Verse 35, Paul says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And you get the sense there's mocking, they're mocking Paul here. You can just kind of hear them sneering. Oh, really, Paul, the dead are just going to come out of the grave. Well, how about that? What kind of body are they going to have, Paul? All decrepit and whatever's left of them? Notice how Paul answers that kind of an attitude in verse 36. He says, you fool! (laughs) That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Don't you know how to plant? These were all farmers. You take a seed, you drop it in the ground, the shell breaks apart, now the middle of it comes life. Verse 37, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of weed or of something else. In other words, if you want to grow tomatoes, you don't stick a whole pile of tomatoes into the ground. No, you put the tomato seeds into the ground. If you want to get a tree, you don't plant an entire full-grown tree. You plant the seed, and when your body decomposes, that becomes the seed that God will use to regenerate new life in a glorified body. Paul says, you fool, don't you know anything about farming? And then he says, besides that, verse 38, God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Wow. Everyone gets their own unique body just as as God wishes. Verse 39, Paul continues, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. In other words, it's going to be a body we really don't know anything about going to be one we have never even seen before it's going to be one we don't really understand until we die god is going to make each one unique now that doesn't really answer what our glorified bodies will be like but paul says i can give you four characteristics of it and these are really four glorious characteristics of your new heavenly body characteristic number one it is an imperishable body. Notice verse 42. It is sown a perishable body. That's what we got right now. It is raised an imperishable body. That means it will never decay. It will never grow old. It will never die. Speaking of the eternal state in Revelation 21 verse 4 it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. more. Any more, mama. Any more. For the former things have passed away. And behold, God says, I am making all things new. You will have a perfect, sinless, totally and completely healed body. Imperishable. Praise the Lord. Second, Paul says, not only is your new body going to be imperishable, but also it will be raised in glory. Raised in glory. Notice verse 43. Your old body was sown in dishonor, but your new body will be raised in glory. Throughout eternity, our new imperishable bodies will be honorable bodies, perfect for pleasing God and praising God and enjoying our Creator who made them, and the Redeemer who restored them. Our glorified bodies will be something beyond what we can really ever even imagine. Thirdly, he says it will be a powerful body. Notice the end of verse 43. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Listen, when we are in these new glorified bodies, we're going to have so much power, man, we could just blast off. I love it in Acts chapter 1, right? When Jesus just takes off into heaven and all the disciples are just staring up at him in amazement. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> and it's incredible. We also will be raised in power. And then the fourth characteristic has to do with the realm of our existence. Verse 44 says, It was sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. Our earthly bodies are strictly uh, natural. That is the only realm in which it can live and function. The the natural physical realm. The, The physical body is suited and limited for the physical world. However, the raised body of the believer will be raised a spiritual body. Our spirits right now reside in our earthly bodies, but when the Lord returns, they will be in our spiritual bodies then in every way we will be spiritual beings. In both spirit and body, we will be perfectly suited for eternal, heavenly living. So here's this marvelous, unique, imperishable, glorified, powerful, spiritual body that can only be born out of our old bodies. Like a seed planted in the ground, when it germinates, it brings forth the fruit and it's all according to God's perfect design. You say, boy, man, I would like to see a body like that, you know. Well, listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 for a second. It says, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. You want to know what your body is going to be like? Look at Jesus after he rose from the dead. Let me give you a little bit of an idea. He had a spiritual body. He wanted to go see the disciples in the other room. He walked right in through the locked doors, right? Right through. That's the kind of body you're going to have. And yet, let me tell you something else that's kind of interesting. Listen to this conversation Jesus actually has in the upper room when he uh, appeared to them it's in Luke chapter 24 uh, starting back in verse 36 Jesus himself stood in the midst after he had gone through the wall and he said peace be with you and they're like terrified now listen to this verse 38 he says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for spirit does not have flesh and Bones, as you see that I have. Flesh and bones, you see that? Kind of glorified body you're going to have. Glorified flesh and bones. Verse 40, and uh, then he said this. He showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? I'm starving, guys. I mean, this is great. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Of course, remember in the end of John's gospel, he goes and cooks breakfast for all the disciples. And John's so excited for his Lord, he's jumping in off the boat, swimming for his Lord. Beloved, I don't know what kind of a glorified body that is, but that's it right there. It'll be like... Our bodies, but way, way better. No more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow. Just perfect, unique, glorified bodies made for eternity, crafted by our God. Just amazing. And you know, we think it's so much better down here, don't we? What a bunch of fools, just like Paul said. You fools. How blind can man be? God says, believe me when I tell you, I've got something way better for you up here with me. Way better. Way better. In fact, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You must be changed in order to inherit the kingdom of God. No earthly flesh and blood will enter. We must bear the image, verse 49, of the man of heaven, it says. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the first fruits." So, we've seen the evidence of the resurrection, the importance, the sequence and the body of the resurrection we'll do the last two quickly number five the moment of resurrection the moment this is about to blow your socks off so you better buckle up (laughs) when's this whole thing going to happen anyways verse 51 behold i tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed but when will this happen paul In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. When is this going to happen then? Verse 22, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when God says, come on up the dead will rise and we will be changed. That key word is right there, changed. When the trumpet sounds, Jesus returns, we will in an instant be changed into new glorified bodies. And and those glorified bodies will burst out of those graves, be reunited with us in the spirit and forever. We will dwell in the presence of our Lord. Now, by this time that Paul gets here, he's about where I am. He is so blessed by this truth. He can hardly control himself. Because next we see the climax. <laughs> Number six. We close with the victory of resurrection. This is a great triumphant victory. And in verse 54. Paul just lets it all go. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then. Then will come about the saying that is written. Death has been swallowed up. In victory. And then he taunts death a little bit by quoting the great prophet Isaiah. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Don't kid yourself. Everyone will be raised. Everyone will be raised. Jesus said in John 5:28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now Jesus wasn't trying to say that you can earn your way into heaven by doing good. Good works on your own are like filthy rags to God. They're not being done for the glory of God. They're filthy. They're for your own glory. Man's glory. But what he's pointing for us here is in John 5. Is that we are all being raised to somewhere either to the resurrection of life or to the resurrection of judgment. That's why Paul breaks into praise in verse 57. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, beloved, that's why we celebrate the reality of the resurrection. When Jesus said, because I live, you will live also, he meant it because you see the resurrection isn't just an event it's a person it's a person Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25 I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die he asked today do you believe this do you believe this? Eternal life is yours if you believe in Christ. Paul said again in Romans 10.9 that if you confess through your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The question I present to you today is do you believe in this Christ? Not the one you've seen presented on TV or... Or heard about somewhere else do you believe in the one presented to you today the one who willingly went to the cross at calvary who died for our sins according to the scriptures that was buried and that was raised on the third day according to the scriptures this is the gospel paul said which i preached to you which also you received in which also you stand but which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word which i preached to you unless you believed in vain Paul said, I deliver to you of first importance. Beloved, this is our victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has supplied it for us. Let us stand now as we worship him together. God bless you.